the NLL has huge potential because it needs to be authentic. And if you hear it from players on a sort of random ad hoc basis and it's consistent across all of those stakeholders in our ecosystem, it's like, wow, like we, you don't have to create it. We just have to manifest it. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about business and sports, innovation, technology, media, teams, leagues, all different kinds of things. Uh, I'm Joe Favorito, and I'm flying solo today uh, with our producer, Taylor DiBernardo, as Tom Richardson, my usual co-host, is off doing more work. Uh, And since this is a little bit less work and a little bit more innovation, uh, I get to do it by myself today. But... Today is a guest that we have, who we tried to have on a couple of years ago and we had technical difficulties the last time actually we had our conference on campus at Columbia, uh, but she has spoken to numerous classes, uh, has really been available to help mentor several of our students, uh, has been around the Columbia community for, for quite a long time. Uh, our guest today is Jessica Berman, the Associate Commissioner of the National Lacrosse League and a Michigan graduate, just like our esteemed leader, Scott Rosner. So Jessica, welcome to the Cusp Show. Thank you for having me. I've been I've been waiting for my follow-up invite. So I'm excited to be here with you. Here we are. Um, so I think the best thing to do, and um, we're going to talk about the growth of box lacrosse and how you got from the NHL um, to um, the NLL now. Um, but I, but you had a kind of unique career path from when you were in school, went to Michigan, law school. Why don't you just take five minutes before we get to kind of the news of the day and we're here at the end of June and the NLL has had several announcements, including uh, bringing on some elite owners uh, for a new franchise in Las Vegas. Um, but why don't you just kind of, for, especially for those who don't know, give us a little bit of uh, your run through from growing up on Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn, through Michigan, through law school, to the NHL and how you got to where you are now. Wow, I'm impressed that you know I lived on Bedford Avenue and my family still lives in that house, amazingly. Um, so yeah, I, I would love to do that. Uh, so I grew up in Brooklyn where uh, it was the true melting pot of the world. And I describe it as the real Brooklyn because during my childhood, there was the beginnings of the uh, trendy Brooklyn emergence where people were moving from the city uh, where I grew up still remains real Brooklyn. And uh, in my high school, I was actually the minority and had an opportunity to really learn about different ethnicities, races, cultures, and uh, developed a real appreciation for diversity, equity, and inclusion from a very young age um, and really felt from the time I was 14 um, that I was grew up with some privilege that I felt uh, should be leveraged to help others. And I always was interested in identifying the areas in society that unified communities and provided opportunities for bringing communities together. And sports emerged as the primary platform for that in my experience. And I decided from the time I was 14 that I wanted to work in sports and became literally obsessed with that uh, and started doing things like keeping stats for our teams, 
I happened to also be a dancer and a cheerleader. So I was at all of the games for football and basketball as well. And really just grew up around sports and fell in love with the platform and the experience of uh, leveraging the passion for sports to really bring people together. I went on to college where I sort of continued that path working for the University of Michigan athletic department. And I was the manager for the Michigan hockey team, baseball team, football team uh, at a time when that wasn't really a thing, uh, sort of created positions for myself um, by convincing people that I could help make their jobs easier and they wouldn't have to pay me back in the days when people could work for free and no one really thought that was a problem, which actually inured to my benefit. Um, and uh, started doing internships in the industry uh, really as a process of elimination to determine what area I wanted to work in or where I felt like I could make the biggest impact. I started on the player side and worked for a variety of sports agents. Um, very quickly learned that that was probably not the best place for me in the industry, mostly because um, although I don't mind having fun, I like sleep more than I like going out. So um, I, the agent life just very quickly became clear was not for me. Um, like to go to sleep at 10 o'clock. So it's like not really the lifestyle that sports agents need to lead in order to retain and recruit clients. Um, and uh, also interned uh, at some sports marketing agencies where I learned a lot about the consulting side of the business and client service and media and ultimately decided to go to law school inspired by one of the agents that I worked for, Steve Forrest, uh, and went to Fordham in New York. On my uh, first summer, uh, I continued to work at sports agency side of the business and worked at IMG. And then uh, my second year of law school, I worked at the NFL Management Council. And that's really when I decided I wanted to become a labor lawyer. And uh, ultimately, after law school, worked at Proskauer Rhodes, which most sports lawyers can trace back to at some point in their lineage. Uh, and I had the good fortune of uh, working for all of the firm's sports clients, um, but really fortuitously uh, having graduated law school in 2002, the timing was perfect for me to um, become the primary associate staffed on the NHL as a client Bob Batterman was the lead partner representing the NHL, and he really needed someone to be his day-to-day -day person and um, tapped me as that person. And he and I went into the trenches together and it gave me the opportunity to meet everyone at the league. And as a mid twenties graduate of law school, had unique access to people like Gary Bettman and Bill Daly and David Zimmerman. And uh, we, worked on, prepared for, and ultimately handled the negotiation with the NHLPA in 2004-05. And uh, through that experience, I ended up getting hired by the NHL in 2006, where I spent the next 13 years of my career. The first nine years I spent as a lawyer working in the commissioner's office on all things league governance and policy related. And then I approached 
Gary and Bill in 2015 and asked for the opportunity to transition onto the business side to really get some visibility into some other areas of the business. And I was specifically interested in revenue and how to grow the game and revenue and reach and relevance. And uh, Gary allowed me to create a position for myself where I led the corporate social responsibility initiatives and helped to realign what the league was doing to be more strategic and focused on partnerships with brands and media. From there, I met Nick Sikiewicz, uh, who's the commissioner of the NLL. And uh, at that point in 2019, I was really um, interested in finding a way to marry together the two very different roles and responsibilities I had at the NHL into one, into one role. And uh, in September 2019, I became the deputy commissioner of the National Lacrosse League. And um, I guess I got what I asked for. I'm now uh, have my hands in virtually every day to day and strategic decision that the league is considering or executing. And uh, yeah, I guess that's my story in a nutshell. So one thing you left out is the highest ranking female executive at a male dominated league, which is the, NAT, the NLL right now. So congratulations for that. Uh, two things I wanna ask you about after you ran through that whole list. Um, the value of volunteering and things, were there any things that you passed up or how did you make a decision as to where, what places you wanted to be, whether it was in high school, Michigan, grad school. Uh, and then the other thing, which I think is even more important because you are a mom of two boys. Um, how did you learn about time management and how do you manage your time best, Jessica? Mm -hmm. um, so the answer to your first question is, uh, it's taken me a long time to learn how to say no. Um, and that's for me, a skill that's still in development. Um, as I was told by several of my direct reports at the NLL, when I asked for feedback at our year end review, how can I better support your efforts? That is consistent feedback was basically to be more selective with how I uh, spend my time. And um, so that is definitely a challenge for me. Uh, I, I definitely am an overachiever, um, but I have learned that I, I need to be more, um, selective with the things that I tap into. And I knew that that would be uh, one of the primary areas of professional development being in this role. And um, certainly I've done that, but continue to try to do better in that space. Um, in terms of what I pursued during all those years, um, you know, I was, I was always looking for experiences as I was going through my process of elimination that were different from what I had previously done. I really viewed everything as an opportunity to either validate what I thought I was interested in or even better to uh, debunk something that I had a vision of in my mind that wasn't accurate. Um, and I felt like no matter what, it would be sort of helpful in getting me further along my journey. I, I think that's even true today. You know. I, mm -hmm. I'm 43. I feel like I still have so much to learn and I really try to welcome any and all new experiences to be an opportunity for growth and learning, whether it tells me I want to do more of this, that was challenging and fun, or, you know, I, I hope I never have to do that again. Um, 
So that's, I guess, the answer to your first question. Second question is your question about time management. Um, I appreciate that you referred to it as that as opposed to sort of work-life balance um, because I think that's a bit of a misnomer um, in how people think about how they show up in their life. Um, for me, time management, uh, I really try to think of it in the micro, um, meaning on any given day or any given hour, how I spend my time needs to be flexible based on what demands exist in my life. That could be work, uh, that could be my kids, that could be a friend in need, that could be a former intern who needs some professional guidance and is faced with a challenge at work and, and asks for my support or my attention. Um, it could be for myself. It could be that like I'm feeling like I'm not the best version of myself and I need to go for a run. And you know what, uh, look at my calendar and say, can I pull out 20 minutes to go and um, take a minute to do a yoga class on my Peloton app or you know, go for a run so that I can be refreshed. I really, and, and I should have mentioned that first because I really subscribe to the view that we have to put our own mask on before we can help others. And I'm no good to anyone in any of that ecosystem if I'm not feeling like I'm the best version of myself and have something to give. So I really try to keep daily monitor on what I need. And um, that includes sleep. And that definitely includes exercise. Cool. Um, when you got to Michigan and throughout your career, because the shoulders that you've you now have are much wider and they continue to go wider because I would imagine there are many, especially young women who come to you and say, you are the person, you have the path that I would like to go down. How did you get there? And then you go in through explain it. But when you got to Michigan, um, how many women were trying to do what you were doing? And then as you've advanced, you've worked in places which are pretty male heavy. Um, how have you been able to balance that out? And, and have you ever looked at it like I'm a female trailblazer or do you, do you just try and kind of fluff that off a little bit? Mm. Um, yeah, I think uh, when I, it's very apparent to me that when I am the only, um, mm. I've, I've been sensitized to that back from my days in college where, you know, as I mentioned, my role working for men's teams wasn't really a role. It wasn't like I applied for a position and there was like an interview process. I really had to convince the decision makers that I could add value. Um, and there was, and it was my first moment where I sort of had the heightened awareness that being a woman requires me to show up very intentionally. Um, and to be aware of how others perceive me. Um, and I, I did have my first uh, sort of uncomfortable conversation where the reality was presented to me that having me be around a men's team with all ma male administrators was unique and had some people take pause. Um, and for me, that meant, um, I need the first thing I have to do is sort of accept that as a reality, at least mm -hmm. for today. 
um, and then ask myself what I can do to make those people feel better about embracing my contribution. And I did that through um, probably some overcorrection in work ethic, um, I, I would admit. Um, and that's sort of still a problem for me <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm working on. I definitely work way too much. Um, but the second piece <clears throat> was really about um, again, probably an overcorrection on the professionalism. You know, I remember people telling me that I would sort of like, I look, thankfully, I'll knock on wood, I think I still look young. Definitely when I was in my 20s, I looked very, very young. Mm -hmm. And people would almost like make comments to me like I looked like I was playing a grown up on TV. Like mm -hmm. I really tried, I remember very intentionally um, showing up to work when I was with the Michigan athletic program, as well as in internships, super professionally, um, so that there could never be a question about why I was there and what my intentions were, and um, that I took this seriously, um, that I was mature, that I could be trusted, um, that I had credibility, and all those things. So it definitely was, a, it's, it's always been a factor that I'm aware of, and I'm have always been very intentional about that, as well as this sort of um, stereotypes and some of the unconscious bias that exist with strong women, uh, with strong women or about strong women um, in terms of how, how I communicate, how I solicit input, um, giving others space or specifically soliciting others' opinions, um, knowing that just being in a position of leadership and power as a woman might be intimidating for some. Um, and I really try to sort of hold myself accountable to, to make sure I um, solicit the input I need to get to the right outcome. I'm a genuine believer in the qualities and the outputs of diversity that I need my team and people I work with to be able to contribute comfortably in order for the result to be the best possible outcome. Cool. Um, speaking of diversity and inclusion, um, cause has always been very big to you. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned, you know, throughout your life since you were 14. Um, and we've seen in the last year, and this will transition into your role at the NLL now, but we've seen in the last year, and you were part of this at the NHL, where probably a year ago, March, if people came up to a, a Liga team, most teams or leagues or brands would say, where is diversity, inclusion, and cause marketing? It probably was five or six. Now it's first or second, and most people not only want to know what you stand for, but what you're doing about it. Um, how has that evolved as part of your life and your job and your, the professional side of your life? Uh, and how important is that now, and how, how do you think it's going to continue to evolve going forward in terms of cause marketing and d and Yeah, well... I think the sports industry has taken a little bit of time to catch up to the rest of the world and certainly to corporate America. Um, and to me, for me, it's uh, uh, very much time for that to be the case. Um, you know, I think uh, the data that supports having CSR be first or second in the list of filters or priorities for an organization is compelling. 
when you look at the fact that our next generation of consumers or fans in our case make spend decisions based on cause and will literally not engage with services, products, or activities with brands that don't stand up in the community as good corporate citizens, you'd be foolish to not have that be a primary filter for any strategic objectives that you're engaging in. And I think companies like, you know, Coca-Cola and, you know, REI and Tom's and P&G, like this has like been a thing for decades. The NBA led the transformation of this area for our industry. So huge kudos to Adam Silver for empowering Kathy Barron's and putting together mm -hmm. NBA Cares and having that be viewed as a business as opposed to like a nice to have or, you know, we're going to do a check presentation and we're going to feel good about what we're doing, but we're not going to have it be part of how we sell inventory. The NBA has been doing this for decades. And I believe it's part of the reason that number one, their athletes feel so empowered um, because it's true. Like you said, people want to know not just what you stand for, but what you're doing about it. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just the explicit permission to sort of stand up for what you believe in, but for the players in the NBA to know that the league really stands behind a values driven and purpose driven platform matters. And the next generation of fans, it's like what they care about. And DEI in particular um, is like the number one cause that, that they care about. So for me um, at the NLL, I, it was the first thing that I was inspired by. My first week at the NLL, I attended the Player Business Summit in Philadelphia and facilitated, I would say, like an informal discussion or focus group with the players who were there. Um, and it happened to be that all the players in the room that day, even though we have indigenous and players of color in our league, the players in the room that day happened to be all white players. And when I was asking them about the culture of the league and our values, and uh, really the idea for me was, you know, to ultimately build out a CSR platform, every single player said the exact same thing. You can't talk about cause or purpose or values or culture without first honoring the heritage of the game and the fact that we are born, our sport was born in the indigenous community and it's the creator's game. And you must make sure that you prioritize that in your research because there, we really can't talk about anything community driven without first honoring that. And to me, especially hearing that from our white players, so mm -hmm. from an ally perspective was so inspiring and really one of the many reasons I feel like the NLL has huge potential because it needs to be authentic. And if you hear it from players on a sort of random ad hoc basis, and it's consistent across all of those stakeholders in our ecosystem, it's like, wow, like we, you don't have to create it. We just have to manifest it. It's already there. It's our job now to figure out how we best communicate it, how we package it, how we tell those stories in a way that helps others to be invited in to who we are and what we stand for. But we don't have to actually like create the culture. In many other situations, the culture actually has to be fixed or addressed 
and you got to look at like an inside out approach. Um, and for us, at least with respect to that particular issue, I feel like we have all the ingredients to show up in an authentic way. Cool. Um, and for those who don't know, and, and Wayne Gretzky talked about it this week in Las Vegas when the NLL's 15th franchise was announced, that box lacrosse is the national sport of Canada, not hockey, but box lacrosse. Um, and for those who don't know, box is played basically on a hockey rink as the difference from field lacrosse, which is played outside during the summer. And the, the PLL is now the dominant league in, in, um, in field lacrosse. Uh, the NLL has great ownership new teams coming in despite the fact that the league hasn't played in will probably play, i think it's 30 months because of the pandemic but you'll see albany in the new franchise fort worth texas as a as a, an expansion franchise and as i just mentioned um las vegas just announced as the 15th franchise um the phrase that uh, nick likes to use is uh, that he's heard in canada is come for the party stay for the game um Tell us two things. One is what does an associate commissioner do, which is your role? And um, if someone was new to NLL looking from an experiential standpoint, what would they see? What makes you excited about it? Yeah. So my role, uh, my, I would describe my role as uh, really, um, and it's a huge tribute to Nick um, and it's, Frankly, my my role and how it's manifested in the last almost two years is really exceeded any expectations I had. And again, I, I give all credit to Nick for how he respects and invites me to be um, at the table to drive the short, medium, and long-term strategic decisions that the league has to make to have our league begin to fulfill our potential. Um, Nick also describes our league as a 35 year old startup because the league has been around and survived for several decades. But um, are we where we think we could be or should be? Definitely not. Um, and my role is to really think about how we engage all of our key stakeholders, whether it's our executives and employees, our ownership, team executives, uh, brands, media partners to be part of the journey, whatever that means, whether it's selling new franchises or helping negotiate our next media deal or empowering our executives to fulfill the vision that we've set forth um, and helping our owners to really think about how they strategically invest in their local communities, um, which is really the key and the lifeblood of, of any traditional professional sports league. Um, so really anything and everything, <laughs> and depending on the day, um, uh, you know, probably focused more internally or externally, um, but definitely a no, no two minutes or hours or days are the same, which is, part of what I love about the role. Um, in terms of your second question, what the NLL, uh, what you see, what's unique about the NLL, um, you know, from for me, again, in addition to the indigenous connection, which is very compelling for me, as I think about the ingredients for growth, um, 
the second thing I find really compelling is that we have a unique confluence in lacrosse of the fact that our current fans, almost 70% of them have never played lacrosse. They're not part of the sort of endemic lacrosse community. However, in the United States, we have hugely strong tailwinds supporting the growth of grassroots at the local level. So to me, that's like the perfect balance because from a short-term perspective, we're not dependent on the lacrosse community. We're not, we don't need the lacrosse community to be able to engage on social or sell tickets. The people who come to our games today, large majority of them are coming for the party and staying for the game as the Calgary mm -hmm. Roughnecks say. Um, and I love that, that tagline. Um, and it's really true and the data has proved it over and over again. That being said, from a longer term perspective, as those kids who are playing lacrosse today in the US begin to grow up and have their own resources to invest in the sport that they love, we'll have the opportunity to really lean into that community who, um, from my experience, the NHL, we know that fans who grew up playing the game will be will be bigger spenders, will be bigger supporters, will be more passionate, they'll be more tribal, more avid, whatever description you want to use. And um, those, those consumers obviously have higher value. Um, they'll be repeat customers, they might be more likely to buy season tickets, etc. So that for me is a huge component. And I guess the third thing I would say is that I also feel like our league has such a unique confluence of investors who are also investors in other traditional mainstream big four leagues like the NBA and the NHL and the NFL and Major League Soccer. Um, yet, we really operate in a much more nimble, flexible, um, less sort of uh, process-driven, more risk-tolerant way. So again, it's sort of like the best of both worlds because we have really smart minds at the table who understand what it means to sort of be a big professional sports league. Um, but we sort of don't have, at least not today, the bureaucracy and all of the obstacles and barriers that exist at some of the bigger leagues to be able to move things forward in a quick and seamless, less friction um, than you might have at some of the bigger leagues. Do you enjoy it more than when you were at the NHL in terms of an entrepreneurial opportunity? I would say yes for where I am today. I don't know that if I had jumped to this type of opportunity five years earlier that I would have been confident enough and, and ready for the curveballs. Um, I, I think uh, I guess everything happens for a reason. I believe that. And I feel like when I think about, you know, my mindset today, I sort of have a better perspective on like, what's a blip on the radar and what's like a big deal. I think my standards for what was a big deal was probably a little bit off 10 years ago. I felt like everything was a big deal. Um, and so I think, yes, for what I'm doing right now, at this point in my career, I'm definitely, I was very ready for this opportunity and I'm really enjoying it. Cool. So the last two questions we like to ask everybody, Jessica, are 
How do you stay up to date with everything that's going on? And that's part of obviously your day-to-day time management. And then um, you have so many people that come to you for advice, especially in the last couple of years. Um, is there one <clears throat> piece of advice that you like to give people right off the bat that that is a lot of people who listen to this are either still in school, recently graduated, or in a career transition? So how do you stay constant and up to date? What do you where do you look? And then also what's the advice you give to people? Yeah, well, you know, there's been an emergence of new outlets. Um, in our industry that I think have really served our industry well. Um, I definitely continue to rely on Sports Business Daily and Sports Business Journal um, for key updates on industry trends and analysis and all those things. But the emergence of Sportico and front office sports, um, for sure, for me, is is hugely valuable. Um, So I'm sort of... um, I like to consume a lot of different information from a lot of different perspectives. Um, I rely on you to tell me what I need to know for sure. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, also my kids, uh, dare I say, you know, like the things that hit their radar as a 10 and 13 year old boy who love not just sports, but gaming and other things. Um, I, I find it really interesting to hear what, who they view as an influencer and mm-hmm. what news they hear about and why it sort of stuck for them. Um, so I use them as like my focus group of two very often. Um, and just anecdotally to know, sort of uh, give me a reality check on what they think is interesting and relevant as compared to what I think is interesting and relevant. And I, I think we all know that um, there is definitely a difference in this next generation. Um, for example, we'll be watching, uh, I'll force my kids to watch big sporting events with me, like on a regular TV. Um, and, uh, so that we can have like a family experience. They, I, I am, I am so triggered by their constant, like, second screen, third screen, I feel like they're so distracted that they're not paying attention. And my inclination is to be like, what are you doing? Like, put that down. You're not paying attention. They're like, I'm on Twitter and I'm following this. Like, it's all related to what we're doing. I'm getting more information than you're getting. And so it's, it's always very important moment for me to be like, well, that's, that is how the next generation engages. Like, one screen experience is like not enough for them. And Mm -hmm. that might be triggering for me, but if we wanna reach this next generation of fans, we have to embrace that. Um, Your second question, which was about um, giving advice. um, You know, I, I, if there's one piece of advice, um, I guess what I, the, the one, if I had to pick one piece of advice, I would say, um, I find, and I can relate to this because this was my, certainly how I was when I was their age um, and at that stage of my career, um, just to try to let people know that not, that the decision that they're faced with or what they're trying to achieve in the short term isn't going to be the last time they get to make a decision, whether it's like what college you want to go to, or if you want to go to graduate school, or what's your first job, like there's very few things in life that you can't sort of course correct or redo or undo. And 
definitely from a career perspective, I, I think we all have more latitude than we think we have to test and learn. Um, and so my, you know, it feels like such an important decision when you're like deciding what's my first job going to be, or should I leave and go to this other, and that's not to say you should take it lightly, but, um, I find that a lot of people I talk to, you know, feel so much pressure and anxiety to make like the perfect or right decision. And my advice to those people is that, um, no matter what decision you make, as long as you continue to be diligent and put forth your best effort, whatever got you to that point, just continue to do that and it'll all work itself out. Just um, keep tabs on yourself and whether you're um, feeling fulfilled in the role that you have. And if you're not, you pivot. Like it, it's that simple and don't feel like whatever decision you're making is gonna be the end all be all for the rest of your life. Cool. And then lastly, um, probably most importantly, how can people follow you, follow the NLL? Where should they be looking on social or in general uh, to learn more about your career and also kind of where lacrosse is going, which is obviously on a, an upward path, both indoor and outdoor? Well, um, NLL can be found on all on all relevant social platforms. Uh, I, I guess we're still probably, re, we're, I think we're still figuring out our strategy on TikTok, but mm -hmm. for sure on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, um, and me, uh, I'm definitely on LinkedIn and Twitter uh, at Jessica Berman one and uh, try to sort of balance how I share information, both personally, as well as in my career. I'm pretty open about my personal life and um, like I said, I, I really believe that I've, I learn a lot through being a mom and through my kids. So I try to share some of those observations as well. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, um, Jessica, I want to thank you for taking some time here on a Friday towards the end of June before we get to the 4th of July. You've had a pretty busy week. Like I said, the NLL announced their 15th franchise and you were there for it in, in uh, Las Vegas this past week. And even more importantly, giving some more people insight into your career journey, which has been, you know, nothing short of interesting, unique, and important to a lot of people. So uh, Jessica Berman, the Associate Commissioner of the National Lacrosse League, thanks for finally joining us on the CUSP show. And we hope to have you back uh, when Tom is back with us, but also when the NL is up and playing, hopefully at the end of this year and, and into many years to come. So once again, thanks for joining us on the CUSP show. Thank you. So happy to be here and look forward to joining you again. Cool. Once again, this has been The Cusp Show. I'm Joe Favorito for Taylor DiBernardo, Tom Cerny, uh, and my co-host, Tom Richardson in absentia. We'll see you down the road.